everyone, and welcome to Cohen Esri Apartment Investors. We have a podcast featuring real estate investment topics. Um, we have our CEO, Lee Harris, and also our CEO, Ryan Huffman. My name is Lydia Kincaid. I'll be moderating our discussion today. Today, we're going to talk about reasons that a real estate investment might fail. Um, so there's lots of um, topics that we look into in our due diligence process and also at micro and macro levels um, before we acquire a property. Um, and so we're going to discuss some of those with you today, um, and we'll see where we go from there. The first topic based on this list um, that we found from the White Coat Investor, um, the first reason that a real estate investment might fail is due to property value decreasing. Um, so maybe Ryan, you could take a spin at this very first topic and how we look at it from a due diligence perspective. Yeah, I mean, the property value decreasing, one of the things that, that Lee has said all along that's kind of a cornerstone of our investment platform is we can fix an asset with any amount of money. We can't fix a location. And so really diving into the location to make sure that you're in a growth area, um, that incomes are going the right direction, that you know all the positive things about an area that you would wanna have crime is low, school districts are good. That's all part of our initial screen of any property. So we look for things, for instance, like household incomes have to be 50,000 and growing. Uh, we have to see pot in a one, three and five mile radius. We have to see population growing in a one, three and five mile radius. We look at crime statistics to make sure those are in line. We look at school district ratings to make sure those are in line. So one of the big <clears throat> misses that people have is they don't screen the area. They look just at the, at the real estate itself. And you got to expand your, your view a bit. You've got to make sure that you're buying in the right area so that you don't see some kind of decrease in the area that will overall decrease your property value. The second thing we do is we shop all the comps. And I think this is important because you want to make sure that properties in the area are on the upswing, that they're taken care of, that people are putting investment back into them. Um, again, looking at, at that overall area to make sure that the values of the real estate's going up. The last piece we look at is home values. Um, so, you know, paying attention to that macro piece of the market you want home values increasing over time. You want people buying, renovating, you know, maybe even building new in that area so that your housing stock is continuing to go up and be, you know, positive, positive for you. So that's that's my take. Lee may have want to add some things on to you know the overall property value discussion, but that's where I start when I'm looking at value. Yeah, I mean, we're in a period right now where there is uh, has been escalating. Uh, value uh, creation, actually, with so many apartment properties. And right now we're talking about apartments. We're not talking about office or retail or, or industrial. In the apartment space, it's, it's been a, a, a hockey stick for years in terms of the growth of, of value. Uh, and one of the factors here that I think is important is timing. Uh, if, if, if you have a holding period if you're buying a property and you want to hold it for 10 years, as, as a number of investors prefer to do, that could be problematic because we don't know how long this cycle is going to last. We do believe this cycle will last at least another five years, and that's our holding period. So I think that it's important that we be mindful of timing in this particular environment where most every property is escalating in value. But uh, uh, if, if, if you're looking to... to 
buy and hold for the long term, that may or may not be a good strategy. So, Ryan, if you could think back to like 2008, 9, 10, what happened with property values then, how thoughtful are you and your team about a crisis like that occurring again? And what sort of um, risk mitigation steps do you take to prevent a a plummet in property values like we saw then? Yeah, I mean, one of the big factors that you look at for that is how you're exiting. And so we don't we don't make aggressive assumptions on exits. So we anticipate cap rates rising on an exit. So that can be anywhere from 10 to call it 20 basis points a year. So if I'm buying at a four cap and I'm holding for five years, we're going to try to sell it at a four and a half or five cap to to build spread. And the, the bigger you can build that spread and make the returns work, the more margin of safety you have. That's number one. Number two, and what we're really focused on is the price, what we call the price per pound out. And what that means is what are we anticipating selling at per unit? And can we prove that today in that submarket in that vintage? That is a very, I will tell everybody, that's a very conservative way of looking at it because in effect, you're going to renovate the property, re- rebalance the rent roll, higher rents, but I want to be able to show today that I could sell that property in that vintage right now. And if there's one metric in our investment thesis that usually puts a deal out, meaning we don't bid on it, this is the metric that's there. Because as Lee said, the market's gotten so hot with so much capital and deals can still make sense, but people are making some pretty aggressive assumptions. An example being forecasting an exit price that you can't even see right now. Buy at 150,000 today, sell at 225 down the road, and the highest price that that vintage asset has sold is 180. That's a big leap to try to make five years out, and that's the caution that you put in place for any type of dive or you know severe market event. Yeah, that's that's great. Thanks, Ryan. Um, so. Item number two, another reason why a real estate investment might fail is that individual properties do not mirror the overall market. Um, So Ryan, how do you separate the performance of a particular, like one specific asset compared to that asset class in the market? Um, How do you figure out if those overall trends are reflective or not in what we anticipate to happen at, at a particular property? Yeah. So, I mean, that's an interesting thesis. There are a lot of areas and let's, let's go micro for a minute and look at Atlanta. There are a lot of areas of Atlanta where new build cannot happen um, from, for a number of reasons, zoning, et cetera. And so we've bought in these markets where there are potentially slightly older assets. What you're really looking at again is who's making investment and what are they doing? You can take a 1980s, 1990s property and make it compete with brand new properties with the right renovation plan. You don't want to over-improve, but when you canvas, and this is why it's important for us to do this shop, when we canvas, they actually go into the property and do what we call a blind shop, meaning they make up a story and pretend they're going to rent a unit, try to see what kind of deal they can cut. But what they're really looking at is, do we have granite countertops? Do we have hardwood flooring? Do we, what kind of fixtures are in the property? Um, and you want to be able to, in effect, what I'm going to call keep up with the Joneses, but you want to be able to mirror a renovation plan or slightly tick it up without going overboard. So an example would be if I walk into a property and I don't see any granite, 
there is a conversation of is granite something that this market will actually absorb and will it be a benefit or are we going to over improve the property for what we need to do those that's the the best way that we have physical on the ground boots on the ground walk in and look to make sure properties are keeping up with the general area and lydia i might uh, add that uh, one of the areas that ryan and i see as as being vulnerable are class c pro- properties and because there's been so much demand for class A and class B and the prices have been bid up, obviously there's so much capital out there. We now have people chasing the, the class C product, which is much older, maybe 1960s, 1970s. And what they get into is functional obsolescence. Uh, and the, then the buyers are trying to make improvements uh, that just don't mirror the marketplace when you take functional obsolescence into account. So uh, you got to be careful, especially playing that class C market. And the, one of the problems there is who's going to buy it uh, five, seven, eight, 10 years out uh, when it's even older? Uh, who wants to buy a 50-year-old property or 60-year-old property that you paid way more for than you ever would in any other condition? Uh, but because the market's hot and now you have $140,000 a unit in it. And if if things settle back down and it's only an $80,000 market, oh boy, that's a disaster for an investor. Right, right. Okay, great. So the next one, uh, lack of cash flow, which sounds kind of obvious, right? Of course, if a property is not cash flowing, you're probably not going to make much of a return on it. But Ryan, reading between the lines on that a little bit, um, what specifically do you look for in your due diligence process when you're reviewing the rental records um, and what the cash flow historically has been for a property? And then how do you build out your financial models um, to make sure that there's sufficient cash flow to cover expenses and, and continue to increase the value? Yeah, I mean, I'll start this with we view cash flow as a potential mitigant against downside risk. So that's how we view it. Now, that having said that, our model with this value add component is heavily IRR focused. So, if you're a current cash flow investor, we've said on these podcasts before, our model is not something that's going to likely work um, because we really are focused on the overall value at the end. But we do want cash flow to mitigate against that downside risk. So, step one in doing that is to do a 100% file audit. And so, what we do is we look at every single file and we compare what's in the file against the rent roll that's been provided to us to make sure we don't have any variance in that, make sure the basically the rent roll integrity is correct so that you know what your current revenue side looks like. We have had situations where that file review has revealed mass discrepancies in what the rent roll showed. An example of that is we had a property in Alabama that we were looking at and we went in to do the diligence and we found that 10% of the rent roll had been put in there, jammed in, we call it, um, within 30 days before the diligence began. And they had massive concessions in place that were not showing on the rent roll. So you got to look at that and make sure that the current income and revenue streams are there. The other part of diligence is we ask for bank statements so we can see what's actually physically being deposited to backstop against that. So making sure your current revenue um, is in place is necessary. I also say to folks, when you're underwriting an investment, you need to have targets for every piece of the model and don't color too far outside of the lines. 
we generally target around a 5% cash on cash return year number one. Um, we'll take a little lower than that on a newer investment where we can see clear runway, but we're not going to take a 1% cash on cash return year one because that's way too far outside the line. So establish that criteria in the very beginning of your underwriting processes and make sure that you're sticking to your guns because particularly now with the market as hot as it is, people want to do deals and they can stretch quite a bit if they want. And if you end up in a down cycle and you don't have cash flow, that can be problematic where you're feeding the property. One of the things that we do uh, see some sponsors uh, doing is uh, unfortunately getting way too aggressive with that underwrite and uh, trying to fit the numbers to the, the price that's being asked for the property or the bid that they're going to make. And so we have some pretty rigid parameters in terms of what we utilize for assumptions on rent increases, expense increases, but we've seen other sponsors that have said, okay, normally we would project a two and a half percent rent increase. We're going to stretch because, and they have some reason, we're going to go to four and a half percent because the market's been 5% for the last year and a half, two years. So we're going to, well, that's not, in our opinion, that's not good underwriting because you can't assume the market's going to increase 5% every year for the next five, six, seven years. Right. Uh, so that's a danger sign where cash flow is concerned. If you're being overly aggressive with your projections, you're going to, you potentially could end up short and, and not have uh, the margin of safety you're looking for. Right. That's a great point, Lee. Thanks for adding that. Okay. Next on the list, over leverage. So Cohen Esri takes a pretty conservative look. I mean, as Ryan, you've said in other components of our business as well, um, and with, with debt. Um, so Ryan, maybe if you could speak to that and maybe what our average percentage is for the whole capital stack, what our debt looks like and how we approach that. Yeah. This one I think is, is one of the most dangerous things that people can do. Um, and why is that? Because debt's cheaper than equity. So a lot of groups look at debt and say they can pop return because they just want to layer on more debt. Well, that is where 0809 got everybody in trouble was the over leveraging that was happening across the system. We prefer to keep our debt somewhere in the 65 to 70% range. We don't want to lever up to the 75, 80% range. Um, and, and when I say it's the most dangerous, that's the reason why people want to get up to that leverage point simply to make returns. And that's where you could get upside down real quick. I think right now we're averaging maybe slightly under 69%. I think Lee, you've got the exact number, but I think it's like 68.9 is our total debt stack. Um, so that's, that's how we view it. We do a lot of GSEs. Um, we're doing some life company loans right now, um, and we're doing some uh, debt fund loans right now. So each of those components has a slightly different requirements. When we're doing those interim bridge products, we're anticipating a permanent takeout after the value add in year three. So that will add some return because it'll put some return of capital back to our equity providers. Um, and that can help with return. So we, we do a full analysis of that, including looking at what our debt stack will look like on a sale and whether there's supplemental available, because that's one thing to consider if you're going to put permanent debt on midstream, you're going to have to figure out on a loan, you're selling at a loan assumption or with a high prepayment penalty. So 
making sure that we know what the leverage is and what the supplemental looks like will help us with our forecasting. That also causes us to, to boost the cap rate on sale because we're anticipating potentially a lower price point. So the more margins of safety you can build into this, the, the better off you're going to be to, to deflect against the down cycle risk. You know, long before you were in the business, Ryan, uh, <laughs> way back in the 60s and 70s, uh, and particularly I remember this from the 1970s, we could borrow 110%. And so you didn't have any money in. You went to the lender and actually got money out of your loan when you bought the property. Uh, and those were, those were great days. However, I do remember that caused a lot of problems uh, from time to time when you hit a down cycle and you had that much leverage. Uh, and uh, you're right, we're, we're somewhere in that 68.7, 68.9% range for debt. The one thing that does, obviously, if you have what's called positive leverage, it enhances your yield, your IRR in particular. Uh, positive leverage means that your interest rate, and really if, if you're accurate with it, it's your loan constant, uh, is, is less than your cap rate. Uh, that, that creates positive leverage. And so the more leverage or the more debt you have on a property, the higher your yield is. We're now in a, a position in this marketplace where cap rates are, are down to the point that they, in some cases, are less than the interest rate and for sure less than the loan constant. And so you have negative leverage. And that means that uh, more leverage is not good for the return uh, that you're looking for. And I would, I would add one more thing. And that is my, my advice to folks is listen to your lenders. You know, your lenders are going to, you're going to underwrite the deal and you're going to have um, a debt amount based on how you've viewed the deal. And what a lot of guys do is they go out and they find the debt product that'll give them the debt amount they want. I always want to hear what the lender says. If my lender comes back in their underwriting and says, well, I can't give you X, I'm giving you X minus. And if it's X minus minus, it's worse. Really take some time to look at their underwriting because maybe you missed something and they're looking at the deal differently than you are. That doesn't mean you have to say no every time, but take some time out to just look and listen to what they're saying to make sure that you you aren't going in blind. Yeah, because there certainly could be long-term consequences. Long-term um, consequences. The wrong choice bad. there, for sure. <laughs> you know, I think as we wrap things up, we can combine number five and number six from this white coat investor list. Um, number five was that assumptions were wrong about the investment property. And number six is property manager risk. I really think those go hand in hand because property management is one of the assumptions that we make when we're looking at an investment. So um Maybe Ryan, you can speak to maybe the rental increases didn't end up happening as we thought, or vacancies were higher than we thought. And how do we balance against that and, and really turn things around in quick order? Same thing with property management performance. Yeah, they do go hand in hand. I mean, I will tell you point blank, property management makes or breaks the deal. It, it really doesn't matter how well we underwrite it or what the spreadsheet says, what happened, what really makes or breaks us what happens on the ground. And so getting the right management company and in particular, the right property manager, that they are the key to any investment making it go. Um, you know, we try on the, you know, when I say on the spreadsheets, we try to build enough margins of safety. We build in lower 
rent lifts than what we think we can get. So if we think after our analysis, we can get $150 a unit, we're going to model 125. Um, that way we've got some cushion in there and management's got some room to maneuver. We also stratify the rent roll. So we don't go in there and say every unit's 150. We may go in and, and juice up our three bedroom units because they're in high demand. So maybe we're going to soup those up with a little better renovation. And those are going to be at 200 or 250. And our one bedrooms may be at 100. We, we really kind of dissect this rent roll down and dissect the market down to make sure that we've got some, some margins of safety in there. What we also try to do, if let's say the investment's midstream and not doing what it needs to do, you turn to the expense side of the equation. So find that savings, bid those contracts, see what you can do in-house, appeal those taxes. I mean, all of those things are going to play into being able to have a successful a successful investment, even if your assumptions happen to be a little off. My recommendation is be conservative on assumptions. Um, don't, don't go all guns blazing right now in particular on the revenue side, because there's a, you see all the articles, right? There's all kinds of hot projections. Everybody wants to rent. The rents are going up some five, 7% in some markets. We don't do that aggressive of an increase because if you try to do that and do it all five years, you're not going to get that all five years. You may get it for the next year, maybe for the next 18 months, and then you're going to restabilize back to normal rent increases. So take some time to massage your model around and maybe even go, what we have done is gone year by year now. So instead of just saying it's a three and a half percent increase, we do it year one, year two, year three, year four, and we kind of follow the axiometrics data um, and put some margins of safety in there. Yeah, and Ryan, I would also uh, suggest that not only is property management overall crucial, but the on-site manager is, that, that's the person that makes or breaks uh, the investment. Uh, and some people look at payroll uh, and they say, well, the payroll expense is too high. Uh, let's put the squeeze on it. And uh, I frankly, I'd rather see us overpay for that uh, property manager position and on a larger property, maybe that lead maintenance position, uh, that, that's where the premium payment is, is so well worth it because you're talking a multi-million dollar investment that uh, is in the, the hands of, of somebody on the ground every day. And if they're not making smart decisions uh, and implementing and executing the plan in a comprehensive manner, uh, it, the deal's just not going to work. Right. Well, I think that's all we have time for for today. Um, thanks, Lee, and thanks, Ryan, for insights, as always, um, in this top list of reasons real estate investments fail. And hopefully our listeners will be able to hear how we really address those head on prior to even acquiring a property. We will see you next time. Thanks, everyone. <laughs>